This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Kanyokahage Nation in Jochage, also known as Montreal, Quebec, the original lands of many First Nations, including the Kanyokahage of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. Taking the time when we engage with digital space to think about the ways in which technology has been fundamentally constructed, regulated, and reinforced by forces of colonialism is a crucial part of the process of understanding the ways in which the colonial narrative is entrenched within our daily lives. Thinking critically about digital space allows for examination of the ways in which colonial motives of control, assimilation, and erasure continue to be embedded in parts of our daily practices. It is equally important to reflect upon our individual positionality in relation to these forces, thinking about how we support and reinforce colonization and how we use and think about technology. We must continue to ask questions about our role in upholding colonialism, including asking ourselves how we engage with technology and questions questioning how we relate to digital space. To learn what land you're on, go to native-land.ca. Welcome back to another episode. It's just me today once again. I've been holding back on the collabs because as of lately I've been (laughs) getting my butt kicked with uni exams and final papers and so I'm just taking it easy. I hope you are too um, for those of you that are also in university. (sighs) Right now is just a little bit of a hectic time and so I'm taking my time taking things as we go and uh also yeah i made an announcement on the lily pods instagram i think like a week or so ago now that i'm changing the schedule for episode release for every other monday now instead of every single monday just for a little bit just so i can take some time and really focus on school but still be generating like content that i'm proud of and that i feel good about and that's going to be at least a little bit entertaining hopefully (laughs) And so, yeah, just holding back a little bit for now, and then we'll see how it all goes in the next little while. Um, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break over Christmas just to spend some time with my family and my friends. But yeah, that's a little update on my end. Uh, This week, I'm really excited to be talking about the topic that is the male gaze once again, but also how the male gaze is tied in with the idea of the panopticon, which is a Foucauldian idea, Michel Foucault, who I think I've talked about a little bit on the podcast before. He's kind of a recurring theme in a lot of the topics that I talk about, mostly because I read a lot of him for university, and I also really love a lot of his concepts. And so today we're going to be talking about male gaze, the panopticon, self-image, and body surveillance, and how those are all tied in together. I think it's going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to it, and I also have been wanting to do an episode on the Panopticon for a while now. It's something that, like, I literally, I could never shut up about if you got me talking about it with you. I could literally talk about it for days, and so I'm excited to be talking about it in connection to the male gaze because that is a topic that I really think could never be talked about enough. I'm just excited to dive back into it. 
and I hope you are too. So I was originally exposed to the concept of the Panopticon in my first year of university back in 2019 in a sociology class on digital culture. And baby, let me tell you, when my prof started talking about Foucault, I was hooked. This was before I had taken any of my sexuality theory classes and just like all of the ideas about like power and surveillance and censorship and control, I was like, oh my God, give me more. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from. First of all, before I get too ahead of myself, let me just give a rundown of the Panopticon, the idea, what it is, if you haven't heard of it, where it came from, and yada, yada, yada. So the Panopticon is technically a physical structure. It's a system of control that was originally designed in the 18th century by a guy named Jeremy Bentham. Its original use was in the prison system, but it was also used in hospitals, schools, asylums, etc. I'm going to be talking about it from the perspective of how it was created for the prison system. Um, basically, the whole idea of the Panopticon was for prisoners to be under the surveillance of one security guard without actually being able to tell whether or not they were being watched. And they did this in the physical structure of the Panopticon. It's kind of hard to explain uh, in like an auditory way. You might just have to Google it to get a visual representation. But basically, the way it was structured was that the prisoners were visible to the security guard but the security guard wasn't visible to them. So what made this structure so powerful was that even if the prisoners weren't actually being watched, they knew that they could be being watched at any moment in time and they would have no idea. So knowing this made the prisoners motivated to always be on their best behavior so that they wouldn't be punished. And what's important to note here is that the motivation that they had to behave properly or normally wasn't inflicted upon them directly by any sort of overt punishment or control by the security guards but by their own awareness of their possibility of being observed. And the whole point was to get the prisoners to regulate and control their own behavior out of their fear of being watched rather than having to inflict actual punishment on them. So the panopticon very simply is the idea of not knowing if you're being watched, but knowing that you could be being watched at any time and how this dictates and shapes and regulates our behavior and how we relate to other people, how we view ourselves, etc. It's basically that we're patrolling ourselves without anyone actually telling us to do anything because our own fear of not following the norm or what is expected of us is forcing us to follow a dictator that's not actually there. It's just in our heads. It's the idea that from one singular place, you're able to control the behavior of many, many people by creating the idea that we are watching the sort of big brother narrative. And there are a lot of really interesting ways to interpret the idea of the Panopticon in modern day. One of my favorites is talking about it in connection to woke culture, cancel culture in the age of social media and digital division and all of this stuff and I think that that's also a really cool conversation but maybe one for another time because <laughs> today I want to talk about the idea of the panopticon in relation to the male gaze sort of how they function together how the male gaze internalized works as a similar sort of system of power as the panopticon because it trains us to control our behavior and our bodies and our speech and our understanding of ourselves as though the white heterosexual man is always watching us even when he isn't. We're trained to watch ourselves as though we're being watched constantly 
which we are by the ever-present male gaze, both in the outer world and in our own little internalized male gaze that exists up in our head that I've talked about in my past episode that you can always revisit if you want a little refresher on what the male gaze is, how we internalize it, and all that all that jazz. <laughs> Coming back to the panopticon, how it relates to the male gaze, the idea that like the knowing that we could be being watched at any time forces us to act in certain ways, to censor ourselves, to dress in particular ways, to hold our bodies a particular way in order to appear more desirable. This sort of panopticon male gaze duality going on makes us as women and as feminine people ask ourselves questions like, do I look desirable? Will this make me less feminine? Will men still find me attractive? How does my body look to other people? Am I as desirable as other women? And sort of creating this competition in our own heads between us and all other women in order to compete for the ever desirable heterosexual man. And all of these internalized notions of interpreting our body in this really specific way based on wanting to be desirable and feeling like we're always being watched altogether creates the idea of body surveillance, which I think is a really interesting and really important point to talk about, especially if we're talking about the male gaze and especially if we're talking about the panopticon. Um, In this context, I want to specifically talk about like my own experience of surveilling my body and hopefully have it be a relatable thing for other people that also grew up kind of perceiving their body as this thing that wasn't totally theirs. So body surveillance is basically just the idea of constantly monitoring your own body out of fear of how other people are perceiving it. You're really worried about how your body looks to other people and not so much how you feel in it. It's very, very focused on outside perceptions of your body. Body surveillance has so, so much to do with the internalized male gaze and can also really be connected to the concept of the panopticon because it's like we're constantly viewing our bodies as though they're being watched by other people, even if they're not, specifically as though they're being watched by heterosexual men, which is why it's tied to the male case. And we end up placing more value on how others perceive us and how others perceive our bodies rather than how we feel about ourselves as more than just bodies, as actual people. And this kind of thing, this body surveillance, this internalized male gaze, isn't innate. It's not like a part of who we are naturally as humans. I think that it's very much socialized. It's very much tied to the culture that we grow up in, the people we're surrounded with, the messaging that we take in from the media, It's definitely not your fault for feeling this way, and I want to emphasize that. I don't think that it's egotistical. I don't think that it's self-centered to survey your body in that kind of way, to sort of monitor how your body looks. And I think that there's, there's this weird discourse, especially for teenage girls, Um, about how being so obsessed with your body and how it looks and how clothes look on you and how other people are perceiving you is somehow really egotistical and it definitely has a lot of connections to the ego but it has so much more to do with how people are socialized into viewing their bodies into talking about their bodies and relating their bodies to other people's that I think is the root of the issue and really like I mean the root of that issue is 
patriarchy and the root of that issue is heterosexism and the root of that issue is white supremacy and all of these powerful forces working together to socialize people into viewing their bodies a really specific way but somehow it keeps getting dumped on these young girls and these young queer people coming into their identities and blaming it on them that they're being egotistical and self-centered for focusing so much on their bodies and I think that that should be very much noted and maybe I'll get a little bit back into that once I talk a little bit more about body surveillance and self-image and sort of how to get out of that. I think that so often self-image growing up is so heavily tainted with forces of the male gaze and the infliction of patriarchal ideals about sex and about beauty and about bodies that it creates this really big struggle between perceiving your body as your own and perceiving it as a vessel that belongs to all those that perceive it as sexual primarily as though it inherently belongs to boys and to men. Getting all of those ideas about perceiving your body as though it's not your own and as though other people are constantly watching it and therefore you need to monitor it and keep track of it and make sure that it's always on its best behavior and all of this stuff definitely creates a huge division between understanding yourself as your own person and understanding yourself as someone who belongs to someone else. And with this type of thinking, we also adopt all of these behaviors and these habits and these conditioned responses to these ideas about body surveillance and about who we are in relation to men that make us shave off our body hair and dress certain ways and be super polite when you're in a situation, no matter if that person is in the wrong and learning not to be assertive, and always being concerned with femininity and appearing desirable, and all of these things that just become really, really habitual responses to the world that we're living in, in order to survive, in order to survive by being desirable. Because that's really how you get through your teenage years, at least for me. And honestly, past past teenage years, I'm definitely, no, like, take that back. Definitely past teenage years, I think we still do that. I think people in their 40s, people in their 50s, people in their 60s, it never stops. There's constantly this narrative of desire that's being projected onto people whether they're women, whether they're queer people, trans men, trans women, of all of these notions of desirability that force us into these boxes that trap us from being able to fully express ourselves, fully embody what we want to become, who we really are, the things we love about ourselves, the way that we want to be. These ideas about being desirable never really go away. They just take different form. And something that I've been trying to do and will probably constantly be working with and adapting and changing and transforming in order to suit where I'm at in my life to sort of escape (laughs) that box, to sort of escape the male gaze panopticon body surveillance universe of terror, (laughs) some things that have worked for me and some things that I've kind of played with and, and explored and had fun with. Some of those things include growing out my body hair. A big thing was when I was 16 and grew out my armpit hair. And it was this phenomenal discovery of like, wow, (laughs) I can do this. I'm allowed to do this. And it feels pretty rebellious and it feels pretty fun, pretty badass. And I mean, also, there was so much more to come with that. And there's so many more layers 
um, that we could talk about with body hair. And I've been wanting to do an episode on that. Ever since I started the podcast, I've been wanting to do an episode on body hair because there's also so many other dimensions to it that we could talk about. Lots to do with the history of desirability and racial difference. And anyway, whole other conversations I don't want to get too off track. But growing up body hair, big one for me when I was a teenager, for sure. Um, really huge part of reclaiming my body and having fun with it and bonding with other people in my life. Another one that I'm still playing around with and still figuring out for myself, um, exploring androgyny and rejecting femininity and having fun with gender, which I think can be an intimidating thing at first. I mean, we live in a very cisgender dominant society. We live in a very heteronormative society. And so playing with gender doesn't always feel comfortable for a lot of us, and it makes a lot of sense why, but I think that this is reminding me a little bit of my episode with Lou from a little while ago about being playful with your gender expression and with figuring out who you are and how you want to be in the world and how you want to dress and how you want to do your makeup and your nails if you want to do those things. I think it's a really powerful way of escaping boxes if that feels like the right move for you and it doesn't for everybody and that's totally okay too another thing that i definitely still have to work on a lot um but that i'm setting as a goal for the next however long it takes me to get it down is being assertive especially with men and not forcing politeness or niceness simply because i feel like i have to and i'm definitely still working on this because it's really really hard to unlearn for me Um, I'm not saying be mean, like I'm not saying be unkind, like don't, don't be an asshole, (laughs) but also don't be polite in situations where you don't need to be polite. Like I grew up with a lot of messaging, um, in my life about always being very nice and very polite and saying thank you and apologizing a lot. Um, that brings me to my next point, which I'll get back to in a second, But I grew up with a lot of these ideas about always being very, very nice to people, even when they did not deserve my kindness. And it's interesting because I think that that messaging didn't go to all of the other people in my life. I think that it was very targeted towards the feminine people, towards the young girls, to the people who society wasn't catered to to the ones who weren't supposed to take up a lot of space. And part of that is I think that I think that they knew that if we took up all of the space that we wanted to and that we could take up if we were put in the position to to dominate in that way and to fully embody ourselves in that way, the world would maybe implode in a really badass awesome way. <laughs> Another thing with that is the whole unlearning compulsive apologies that I feel like I've made good progress on, but still definitely need to work on. I know this is a big thing for a lot of people. Um, A lot of other people in my life are still learning how to not apologize when they don't need to. And this is a tough one. Um, One practice that I'm sure is a pretty common one that I've tried to implement is instead of saying sorry, of saying thank you, in situations where I might say sorry. So say that I am late for something instead of saying, so sorry, I'm so late, I'm so sorry, like da-da-da-da-da. 
I'll say, thank you so much for waiting. Thank you for having patience. I've tried to do this at work. I work at a French bakery, pastry cafe place, and we have like delivery people who come in uh, for DoorDash and we don't always have stuff ready. Um, I'll let them know. Like, I'll be like, okay, it'll be like two minutes. I just got to make a latte. Like, I'll be with you in one second. And then uh, if it takes me like a little bit longer than a minute, I'll go up to them and I'll be like, thank you for waiting instead of sorry it took so long because you know what? It's not always necessary to apologize. Sometimes 100% yes, like (laughs) apologizing is very important. I'm not saying it's not, but I think this compulsory habit of apologizing when we don't need to is a very like deeply ingrained patriarchal messaging kind of thing that we need to unlearn. The last little bit that I'll share that has been really good for me in escaping the sort of male gaze panopticon universe that exists in my head is getting tattoos and piercings and dyeing my hair, which I did about a month ago, I guess now. It's like quite pink right now. (laughs) Doing these things as an act of radical self-love and also kind of saying a big fuck you to feminine standards of beauty. And while I still have elements of femininity that I really love and that I really value and cherish in myself, I'm really trying to sort of sort through those parts of femininity that I understand to be parts of me and those that I think I was conditioned into believing were parts of me. And I think that's also sort of tied up in the process of me exploring who I actually am and who I want to be and how I want to dress and how I want to express myself because so much of that is so deeply ingrained and so much of it is tied in with the male gaze and that little voice in my head that is telling me that everyone's watching and it just I don't know it feels it feels really good to just have fun with it and not give a shit how it turns out and don't get me wrong I definitely gave a shit like in the process of dyeing my hair I definitely had a wee little bit of a breakdown when I was like oh my god (laughs) what if I look horrible and it's like yeah what if I do look horrible so freaking what if I look horrible the world will not end And I think sometimes we do genuinely think that the world might end if we look horrible or if we aren't feminine enough or if we're impolite to that one guy harassing us on public transit. Because in a way, it does kind of end because the world relies on the fact that women are socialized into being a certain way, into presenting themselves as certain people and this goes for queer people as well. Like, I don't I don't want to simplify it by just saying women because anyone who's targeted by misogyny, anyone who's targeted by the male gaze, by heteropatriarchy, all of these people are put in direct social danger when they don't adhere to the male gaze standards of beauty and of desirability, when they stop feeling that panopticon system of power in the way that they think about themselves in relation to other people. It's when we get out of those boxes, it's when we realize that we're not in the panopticon, that we can be our own fucking human beings and do whatever we want, that we're put in danger because the world around us is constructed around the idea that we're meant to be desirable and that we're meant to adhere to the white heterosexual male gaze. And so there are different sides to it. There's there's ways that we can be empowered by saying a big ol' fuck you to that. And there's also ways that we can be empowered by functioning within that 
And so I really think it's just up to all of us to see where we want to be on this little map of the universe and where we're even capable of being depending on our circumstance and our positionality in the world. There's so many more layers to it than just doing what you want. There's definitely barriers in the way from some of us doing what it is we totally want. And I think that that's an important component of empowerment to talk about is that Not everyone is in the position to empower themselves the way that they need to or the way that they want to. I say a good takeaway for this week is find something that feels right to you that also rejects the male gaze however you've internalized it. Whether that means dyeing your hair (laughs) or getting a tattoo or playing around with clothes or throwing out all of your clothes or shaving your head, whatever the fuck it is, I say go for it, and I say have fun while you do it. Thanks so much for hanging out this week. This was a little short but sweet one. Hope you had fun. I can't wait to hear from you. I can't wait to hear all of the fun things that you do this week. (laughs) I hope that at least one of you dyes your hair or shaves your head. I would love pictures if you end up doing this. Please, please send them to me. You can always connect at thelily.pod on Instagram. Would love to have you as part of the conversation. And I'll see you in a little bit.